Thank you, Mr. Welch. Members of the society, I'd like to take just a moment to call to your attention a very important moment in history. I'd like to go back 202 years ago off Sandy Hook, Long Island, late in June, 1776, when Lord Howe had 58 of Great Britain's most formidable men of war, 27 armed sloops, 400 transports, all loaded with soldiers, waiting to see what those foolish fellows down in Philadelphia would do with respect to declaring their independence. You will recall there was a total of 56 of them. They were not all there when word came to the Continental Congress that this armada was standing off Sandy Hook. But those men represented the best of middle class of the colonies. From the south, the well-to-do planters. And from the north, the merchants, judges, lawyers. And when that word came to those who were studying and debating whether they should declare their independence, despite the ominous effect of that news, the next day those men voted in the Committee of the Whole to declare their independence of Great Britain. I call that to your attention because in that, by that means I want to express to Bob Welsh and to each of you my sincere admiration for being in a true sense the lineal descendants of those men of courage who founded this nation. Bob, I congratulate you and all of you who have participated in this organization for 20 years in the grand work you've done under adverse circumstances to preserve the very best of the American tradition. Today, a number of very wonderful and well-meaning people express their sympathy that I was not going to be governor during the next term of our very great state of New Hampshire. Let me just say to you that the next day after the election, while I'm not one who likes to be defeated, I felt that it was the work of the Lord, and I was going to accept it as such and continue in whatever way I can, in or out of office, to fight for those things which I started fighting for long ago 
that my children and our grandchildren and all of America for that matter might in the future have a better life because we pass this way. You cannot be governor of a state such as I was and still am and oppose teachers' strikes, which are unlawful in our state, without incurring the wrath of many of the teachers of the state. Nor can you oppose a fireman's strike in the largest city of your state and have to call out the National Guard in order to protect that city without incurring the wrath of municipal employees. Nor can you, as a political issue, stand strongly against binding arbitration for public employees, which gives the key to the state treasury to those employees, without incurring their wrath. Nor can you oppose a 6% increase for your state employees for the simple reason that there is no money in the treasury to provide for that. And even though several weeks later, when better estimates on our revenues came in and we were able to go forward with a bill that I had vetoed and asked the legislature to override it, it made no difference the state employees remembered. Nor can you oppose the kooks and the nuts who do not believe in the Seabrook station and veto a bill that would have made it impossible to continue the financing of the Seabrook station by means of construction work in progress, which incidentally added 9% to the electric bill of about two-thirds of the people of our state without having a number of them resent it. I said on the campaign trail, and I've said it afterwards, that if I had to do it over again, I would do it exactly as I did because this nation is in urgent need of energy in all available forms. If we are going to maintain our independence, provide for our national security, and also provide for the future of the children of this nation. So friends, I just wanted to make the point with you that that last item, quip, was in my judgment the one item that did defeat us by a margin of 11,000 votes. And I wear that defeat proudly as a badge of distinction. I want to talk with you briefly about brownouts and blackouts that we face. Before doing that, I do want to say that I thoroughly enjoyed, Bob, the wonderful speech by Peter Beckman this afternoon. And while I was sitting listening to what I considered the 
finest exposition on nuclear energy and its domestic use, the thought occurred to me because reference was made to the fact that all around us we have radioactive material. Of the time early in my administration, when we were supposedly having fallouts from the Yankee nuclear plant in Vermont because the prevailing winds were coming from the Northwest, and we were told by people in the southwestern corner of our state that their milk was being contaminated and the chickens were not laying as they should and they were fearful for their lives. Now, Vermont happens to be one of those very liberal states that enacted reg safety regulations that were far more stringent than the federal ones. So we got a very sophisticated testing machine tested for nuclear fallout in the southwestern corner of our state, tested in Manchester, our largest city, and the day they brought it to the state house, unbeknown to me, I happened to be away, they brought it into my office, tested there, and where do you suppose they got the largest amount of radioactive material? Not because I'm political, but it was in the state house. And it was because the state house was built of granite, which is heavily impregnated, in our state at least, both with uranium and thorium, so much so that we are supposed to have in New Hampshire the largest quantity of uranium and thorium east of the Mississippi. So I appreciated your remarks, Dr. Beckman, and uh, I only wish that all of the people, not just in this room, but throughout the United States, might sooner or later get your very fine message. One of the gravest problems facing America today is our growing shortage of energy. In less than five years, many parts of our country will face brownouts or in intermittent shortages of electricity. Others may have blackouts or periods when there will be no electricity surging through their lines. Such shortages of electricity will have a devastating effect on our economy. Industry today can scarcely turn a wheel without an adequate supply of electricity, and homes cannot be comfortable without it. When I attended my first Republican Governor's Conference more than five years ago, I heard a panel of experts that included Dr. Teller discuss the growing shortages of energy that could imperil America's future. In that March of 1973, we were dependent upon foreign sources for 38% of our oil. Now we buy 46% of our oil from foreign countries, and it would be 50% if we were not getting a substantial supply of oil from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska at this time. In 1973, foreign oil cost 
$2.59 a barrel. Now we pay $13.66 per barrel and are subject to further price increases whenever it moves the OPEC countries to do so. Then a gallon of gasoline cost 38 cents and a gallon of fuel oil 22 cents. Now these average respectively 67 cents and 53 cents per gallon. At that conference, I became a confirmed believer in the urgent need for this great nation to rapidly increase its production in all forms of energy. I resolved to learn all that I could about our national energy problems. In May of that year, I visited the North Sea oil and gas operations off the coast of Great Britain, had interviews with leading authorities in London, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Peterhead, and flew out to a drilling rig in the Burl oil field. I inspected refineries in Europe. In June, after coming home, I created the first state energy council in the nation, and that was before the embargo. In the months and years that followed, I studied the Alaska pipeline from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez, visited the largest liquid gas plant in North America located on the Cook Inlet in Alaska, toured refineries from the East Coast to the West Coast, and from Canada to the Virgin Islands, saw shale rock in Colorado being converted to oil by the Parahoe Company in Rifle, Colorado, and steam rising from newly drilled geothermal wells in Utah. I have seen nuclear plants in this country, in Taiwan, and South Africa. The unfinished reprocessing plant in Barneswell, South Carolina, incidentally unfinished because of the action of our president and have been briefed at Oak Ridge on the Clinch River Breeder Reactor Program. Later this next year, I am scheduled to visit the gas drilling operation in the high Arctic, and after that will examine open pit and deep coal mining in this country. I have testified many times against the crazy, non-productive energy bills proposed by short-sighted environmentally oriented congressmen and have spoken to hundreds of audiences in my own state and throughout the nation on the subject of energy. These studies convinced me that America needed to develop a crash program for the production of energy. At stake is not only the economy of a nation that now draws down its wealth by paying some $45 billion a year for OPEC oil, but also hanging in the balance is the very survival of our nation. The great tragedy of our energy program is that we have a scarcity of readily usable energy and an abundance of energy natural resources. There is an apt verse from Proverbs to describe this point. 
where no wood is, the flame goeth out. Actually, we have the wood, but are unwilling to gather it. For example, we have more of the world's fossil fuels than any other nation. The oil, gas, coal, shale, and tar sands that we have in this country amount to 33% of the world's supply of fossil fuels. Our experts tell us that from provable and anticipated reserves, we probably could develop enough gas to last this nation for about 50 years. In oil, we could possibly develop and meet our needs for 100 years. Our great coal reserves, if properly mined and utilized, could carry this nation forward for another 500 years. If the intemperate environmentalists and the kooky clamshellers could be legally caged and shucked, we could meet our energy needs for a thousand years from the vast reserves of shale to be found in Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming. If we could build the nuclear plants needed for the transitional period between the generation of electricity by oil and coal and the more abundant era of energy generation by fission and fusion techniques, we would have an adequate supply of energy for a hundred or more years. But more important, if the president would lift his ban on breeder reactors and let us mix plutonium with our presently stored nuclear waste, we could meet our energy needs for more than a hundred years. I have seen the 2,000 canisters of nuclear waste stored at Oak Ridge. I have heard this volatile waste crackling inside the storage tanks like bursting popcorn. This waste, if utilized in breeder reactors, we were told, has a value on today's energy market of $22 trillion. Even more significant, if we were to use ultimately all of the waste from all of our potential nuclear resources in breeder reactors, we would be able to meet all of our energy requirements for at least a thousand years, and there are those experts who say that that figure is low and that we might have enough to go for 17,000 years. What a shame, what a tragedy that we live amidst a wealth of energy resources and yet suffer without audible protest, a growing dependence on OPEC oil and the hastening day when we will have to live with brownouts and blackouts in electricity.
are growing to shortages of energy and the spiraling prices of all forms of fuel bear the ugly brand of a political conspiracy. It is one thing for that vicious environmentalist smart aleck, Ralph Nader, to unctuously proclaim that if people will get back to the earth, they can grow their own gardens, listen to the birds, feel the wind across their cheeks, and view the rising sun. Without pointing out that minus commercial fertilizers and pesticides, which he deplores, his scrawny vegetables would probably be destroyed by disease and pests. It is quite another thing for the elected representatives of the people in the Congress and state houses, and our own Larry McDonald and a few like him accepted, to curb deliberately the development and production of our vast storehouse of natural resources. We cannot get on with the exploration for oil and gas at the Georges Bank on the Atlantic Continental Shelf because of an environmentally oriented gubernatorial administration in Massachusetts that obtained an injunction in federal court on the grounds that the two impact studies previously prepared were allegedly inadequate. How long, friends, will we tolerate the usurpatious interference in the lives of our people by a federal judiciary that too long has been out of touch with the real meaning of the federal constitution. <laughs> About those stupid impact studies that impede modern progress in America, did you ever hear of an archaeologist discovering the papyrus on which an impact study was written for the building of the Great Pyramid of Egypt? We should have required an impact study before giving away the Panama Canal. It takes so long for the bureaucracy to move, at least it would have guaranteed our holding on to that vital link in our national security for another 20 years. I have often said that the only conceivable good to be found in an impact study would be the burning of it to produce heat for the shivering souls denied energy for want of such a study. In the case of Seabrook Station in my state, the impact study consisted of 28 volumes and cost $25 million. And I would point out to you that in Alaska, where they had a long delay to build the Alaska pipeline, the Congress called for an impact study. And when it was completed, it one copy, or in a series of volumes, one set, weighed 160 pounds, and no one bothered to read it. Why? Because when the embargo came, 
the Congress passed a very small bill that said, in effect, get on with the building of the Alaska pipeline. The Seabrook nuclear plant is one of 75 such plants now under construction in this country. It is a costly monument to the crash stupidity and diabolical bungling of an inept Congress and a sinister bureaucracy. Planning for Seabrook began in 1970. Two years later, a site application was made to the New Hampshire Site Evaluation Committee. Construction began at Seabrook in July 1974, after more than four years of licensing procedures and public hearings. Construction was then suspended by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on a two-to-one vote after Carter had appointed a very liberal member from Maine to the commission. Construction was resumed in June 1977 upon action of the new administrator of EPA. In July of this year, construction was again halted by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. A month later, the construction permit was again reinstated. At this moment, it looks as though m work will again be suspended, and this time because of financial problems of the Public Service Company of New Hampshire, namely the bond market has lost faith in the possibility of the Public Service Company meeting its obligations with a new governor coming in who is pledged to oppose construction work in progress. These incredible delays were described in a Wall Street Journal editorial last February, February captioned Berserk Proceduralism. Approval is being voided, the paper said, and future supplies of energy in New Hampshire are being jeopardized over the question of who delivered the advice and in what kind of ribbon was it wrapped. These unnecessary, nay, unconscionable delays will ultimately cost electric consumers of the public service company an extra $1 billion. The cost of the two-unit, 2,200-megawatt plant was originally estimated at $1.2 billion. It is now estimated at $2.4 billion providing there are no further delays. And the contemplated delay, because of the possible canceling of construction work in progress, is anticipated to be at least one year more. Seabrook Station is urgently needed for the future comfort and prosperity of the people of New Hampshire. Today, New Hampshire has a booming economy. It has been referred to by Newsweek, Newsweek as a standout state in a depressed area. In a similar vein, many of us in our state say New Hampshire is what America was. As you know, 
we are the only state in the nation without a general sales or income tax. We have the lowest per... We have the lowest per capita state tax at $235 and the lowest combined state and local tax per capita in New England of $618. We are the only state in New England with a triple A bond rating and the only one with a surplus in its employment security fund. Due primarily to this favorable tax climate, we are the second fastest growing state east of the Mississippi. Our per capita income rose by about 10% last year, the eighth best in the nation. During the last six years, we attracted more than 260 new industries with 20,000 new jobs. Our resident industries expanded their employees by 63,000. Our present 2.8% unemployment is one of the lowest in the country. This kind of industrial expansion requires an expanding source of electricity. This is why Seabrook Station is so important to the future growth of our state. If Unit 1 of Seabrook is not in line by the end of 1982 and Unit 2 by the end of 1984 as presently scheduled, our industries and homes will face serious brownouts and ultimately blackouts. In fact, this is the grim prospect for all of the country by 1985 if there is not an immediate and substantial increase in the production of energy. It now looks as though Seabrook will require from 12 to 14 years to build. Currently, similar plants are being built in Taiwan in seven years and in South Africa from five to six years. Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter all promised to seek legislation that would reduce the costly, interminable bureaucratic delays that almost double the time of construction of a nuclear plant in this country over the time required for the building of such plants in other countries. Thus far, the Congress has done nothing to shorten these delays nor can relief be expected from this quarter until the liberals are driven out of the seats of the mighty. During the past two years, Seabrook Station became the rallying point for no-nuke demonstrations. The aim of the demonstrators was to interfere with construction work at the site and thus bring a halt to the work. The demonstrators reasoned that if they could stop work at Seabrook, they could then hope to pursue successfully their nefarious activities at other nuclear construction sites. Similar tactics had succeeded in West Germany, France, and Sweden. Why couldn't they be applied in America? Seabrook has suffered 
three major assaults by the Clamshell Alliance and related groups. In all three demonstrations, not a single hour of work was lost at the site. I think this was due to the firm, determined stands taken by the state and the public service company. In anticipation of each of the three demonstrations, the public service company, with the support of the state, obtained court orders forbidding trespass on certain areas of the construction site. In the first two demonstrations, the court orders were violated and the unlawful demonstrators were arrested. In the third demonstration, the company set aside an 80-acre plot adjacent to the secured site. Approximately 10,000 demonstrators congregated there for two days, put on their exhibitions, and generally did their thing in a peaceful manner. No arrests were made. In the May Day demonstration of 1977, about 2,500 demonstrators assembled in the parking lot and adjoining area in which the court injunction did apply. They were allowed to camp out without interference overnight on a Saturday, but ordered to clear off the site Sunday afternoon in anticipation of the return of the workmen early the next morning. And I think, incidentally, the workmen were looking forward to finding the no-nuke guys there that morning. When the demonstrators refused to leave the premises after being ordered off by the colonel of our state police, they were arrested and bussed to a nearby National Guard armory where they were arraigned and refused release on personal recognizance. Knowing that New Hampshire was a small state, the demonstrators apparently had decided to jam our judicial system by sheer weight of numbers. By early Monday morning, 1,414 demonstrators had been arrested. Practically all refused to post the $100 bond generally required. A few were sent to the vacant cells in our county jails. Most, however, were held in several armories with National Guardsmen serving as prison guards. These demonstrators came from 34 different states. The largest contingent was from Massachusetts. Several states had more demonstrators than did we. Many were college students and some professors who had come for a weekend lark. The escapade turned into a distressing experience for many held in New Hampshire armories under official arrest at a time when they should have been in their college and universities taking term exams. For some hardcore demonstrators who steadfastly refused to post bail, the incarceration lasted 13 days, but most eventually posted bond and left New Hampshire. During this time, I received many suggestions for handling the demonstrators running all the way from immediate release to hard labor at chopping the wood which many no-nukers 
advocated instead of splitting atoms. Unfortunately, federal court decisions spelled out in some detail the things we had to do and the things that we could not do. To stay within the law, we had to have daily health inspections by our public health doctors. And an assistant attorney general was at the elbow of the National Guard general most of the time. We even had to buy special foods for the vegetarians among the prisoners. Some would not drink Minute Maid orange juice because it was owned by AT&T. One day, a guard caught a prisoner rooting in the garbage for a cellophane wrapper. He wanted to see if the lettuce he had just eaten was wrapped with the approval of Caesar Chavez. By a firm, fair handling of the demonstration, we broke the back of the protest but not before. But not before it had cost the state over a quarter of a million dollars. Afterwards, the Attorney General and I were flattered by the filing of a $50 million lawsuit against us by the demonstrators. Fortunately, the courts dismissed the suit. Thus, we proved in New Hampshire that Although a small state, we could handle an unlawful nuclear demonstration or a peaceful one with equal aplomb. People from all over the nation were interested in our treatment of the demonstrators. One police chief from a small town in New York phoned our press secretary to learn if his two sons were among the arrested ones. When advised that they had been arrested, he responded, good. <laughs> they are a tough pair. Keep them a while. <laughs> An inquiring mother who had been out of touch with her collegiate daughter for some months was shocked to learn that her daughter was in an advanced stage of pregnancy. People from all over the country sent us contributions to help defray the cost of holding the prisoners. In all, we received more than $8,000 from these sources. Trials of the defendants in the 1977 demonstration are still going on in our state. Last Friday, this 75-year-old pediatrician, Dr. Benjamin Spock and his 35-year-old wife, were found guilty of criminal trespass at the Seabrook site and fined $200 each and given imprisonment at hard labor for 60 days. <laughs> Naturally, they have appealed to the Superior Court of our state. Friends, we cannot long remain a free and independent nation if we fail to solve our energy problem. As a wig wag once said, if you like the oil embargo, you will love the second stone age. 
with an abundance of energy resources around us, it should be obvious to every reasonable citizen what America needs is an all-out crash program for the production of energy. In view of the urgent nature of our energy problem and the tragic effects it will have on this nation if we fail to resolve it successfully, we should be engaged in an all-out war against time, inflation, and the causes of delay that have prevented this nation from being energy independent once again. A full-scale crash program for the production of energy would provide far more and better jobs than the government could ever generate with billions of the taxpayers' dollars. Eventually, Eventually, such a program would bring an end to our heavy purchases of OPEC oil, reverse our adverse trade balance, and restore soundness to the American dollar. To accomplish this goal, we would have to elect to the Congress free enterprise members who would get the bureaucrats off the backs of our energy producers and the government out of the energy business. Such a Congress should make it a criminal offense for demonstrators to conspire to cross state lines for the purpose of violating state laws. Instead of wasting billions on foreign aid that is not appreciated and not needed, the UN and the Export-Import Bank, all tainted by support for communist projects, the Congress could guarantee loans to huge energy pr production projects. Such a program, if vigorously pushed, could in a decade set the wheels of industry humming as they never before have, provide profitable jobs for an expanding labor market, and stimulate a prosperity such as this nation has never known. The energy challenge is sharp. Its solution is clear. Why tarry we besides the pools of indolence and in the hills of confusion? The crisis of our growing dependence on foreign countries for energy digs deeper into the vitals of this great country. Soon the shock and pain of that shortage will be felt throughout the land. When that day comes, perhaps America will realize that its very survival depends on its ability to create an adequate source of energy. Then, if it is not too late, on the timepiece of history that measures the destiny of nations, our Congress and our people will come alive and go to work for energy's sake. Thank you.